I'm aware that like any other preacher, I've preached my fair share of sermons on the parable of the prodigal son over the years. In fact, as I tracked back through my records, I found at least six times that I've preached on this text, and although six sermons out of 1,400 or so may not sound like a lot, it's actually quite a few on one story, and because I didn't spend a lot of time looking through the list of sermons preached, there may be a few more times than that. Now, I didn't go back and look at any of those sermons before writing this one, but I am pretty sure that some of them were focused primarily on the young man who we call the prodigal, the one who took the inheritance early and traveled far away and blew through all the money, ended up eating food he was supposed to feed to pigs, and then came crawling back home. What does it mean to blow it? Can we still come home? What does grace look like? I'm also fairly certain that when preaching on this text, I have sometimes focused primarily on the older brother, loyal, faithful, and ultimately resentful. I've preached those sermons because I recognize that those of us who have been responsible and steady, but with an expectation toward being rewarded and recognized for our good works, recognition that we might consider fair treatment, have lessons to learn from the resentful attitude of the older brother and the response of his father to both him and the prodigal. And I'm pretty sure that sometimes I've focused sermons on this text on the father with his patient waiting, his yearning for his lost son, and his wide welcome. How is it that the father sees the son while he is still far off, as the scripture says? Is he watching and waiting every day, standing there waiting at the end of the lane? And if so, what does that say about God's waiting for, yearning for, accepting of us? We've wondered about those things together. But for all those sermons, I don't think I've ever really focused on the feast itself, the meal, the party that's thrown when the prodigal returns. After all, the meal gets just one line in the story when the jubilant father commands his slaves to get it going. Get the fatted calf and kill it, he says, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I don't think I've focused on that before, but the feast is important. The meal is central in this story, and we know this is true because if we back up to the beginning of chapter 15 of Luke, right there at the top is this introduction to everything that follows. Quote, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to him, him meaning Jesus, And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the context. That's the the conversational context. That's what's going on when Jesus responds across the rest of the chapter with three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then this third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, or as some translations label it, the parable of the prodigal and his brother. 
So given where the scripture begins, it's not hard to make the assumption that the parables, and this third one in particular, are Jesus' sideways answer to the religious leader's criticism of his table habits and his dinner guests. And if that assumption is correct, then that would mean that essentially, in telling these stories to the crowd, Jesus' response to the criticism of him welcoming sinners and eating with them is this. Yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do welcome sinners and eat with them. And maybe you should too. Yes, I do, and maybe you should too, because when this happens, this eating together, this fellowship without respect to boundaries or barriers between the acceptable and the unacceptable, this eating together, no matter what one's status or background or past behaviors might be, including past failings and mistakes, this eating together and enjoying it, when this happens, something holy is happening. Grace is happening, acceptance is happening, homecoming is happening, nourishment is happening, recovering of what had been lost is happening, celebration is happening, and maybe even reconciliation is happening. And all these things offered to anyone and everyone and supported by spoon and fork, by glass and bowl and napkin, by passing of plates and sharing of thoughts are within the will and the way of God. Because, we can imagine Jesus suggesting to them, God wants to make a space for even those we would reject, even those we would judge, like the older brother judges the younger. God wants to recover those who have wandered away or who have been lost in the shuffle God wants to welcome those who have gone away, far away, and now show up on the doorstep, uncertain, hungry, needy. God wants to feed them and us. And God wants such a meal to be a feast, a celebration, a feast of grace, a feast of acceptance, a feast of joy, a feast of restoration. So sit down and eat with others, Jesus seems to be telling them in story form, even and especially those who need to be restored, who have come back home hungry. Sit down and eat, and God will be at work. Because when you sit down and eat together, you let down your guard. You spend time with the person across the table from you, You talk and you share and you get filled up. Eating together makes us human to each other. And at its best, it makes us family to each other. Now, that's all imagination. Jesus doesn't actually say all those words. He tells a story, a parable instead. But I can imagine thoughts like that swirling around the parable running around them and through running around it and through it. So sit down and eat with others, even and especially those who need to be restored, who have come home hungry. 
Sit down and eat and God will be at work because when you sit down and eat together, you let down your guard, you spend time with the person across the table from you, you talk and you share and you get filled up. Eating together makes us human to each other and at its best, it makes us family to each other. I invite you to think about that for a moment and to think about how much you enjoy eating with those who are dear to you. How it nourishes you at so many levels. But then also to think, if you will, about the other side of the coin. About how reluctant you might be to eat with those with whom you do not want to associate. Who wants to eat with their opponent, their rival, their enemy, their selfish and therefore undeserving brother? And yet the the common and the, the core experience of eating, of sitting at the table together is vital, whether with our beloved ones or with our rivals. Eating together does something that maybe nothing else can do. Partaking of food at a table piled high with welcome and nourishment and sharing and willingness does something that maybe nothing else can do. It meets our human need to be human to each other and to recognize across any and every barrier the most basic things we have in common. Hunger, the need to be nourished, the healing that comes when we can spend time with each other, our call to share what we have, and the need that we have to enjoy something together in order to turn the corner toward enjoying each other. Eating together, especially from a table piled high with food, as well as welcome and acceptance and sharing, gets our bodies as well as our hearts and minds together. And then who knows what might happen from there. Amy Jill Levine, professor of New Testament studies as well as professor of Jewish studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and an author of the book Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, points out that often we are in a rush to make the parables work out the way we think they should. In this case, perhaps, our impulse is to rush toward a lesson of repentance and forgiveness. Although she notes there's nothing in this story that suggests that in the household described, anyone has expressed sorrow at hurting one another, nor has anyone expressed forgiveness. But we read it that way because that's our stock message. We see the prodigal return and the father open his arms and we read repentance and forgiveness into the interaction even though the son never says, please forgive me. And the father never says, you are forgiven. Instead, Levine makes this suggestion. If we hold in abeyance, at least for a moment, the rush to read repenting and forgiving into the parable, then it does something more profound than repeat well-known messages. It provokes us with simple exhortations Recognize that the one you have lost may be right in your own household. Don't think of the older brother as the one who has lost necessarily. But maybe the one who has lost is right in your own household. 
Do whatever it takes to find the lost and then to celebrate with others, both so that you can share the joy and so that others will help prevent the recovered from ever being lost again. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find it. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored, for there's nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. Instead, she continues, go have lunch. Go celebrate. And invite others to join you. If the repenting and forgiving come later, so much the better. And if not, you still have done what is necessary. You will have begun a process that might lead to reconciliation. You will have opened a second chance for wholeness. Take advantage of resurrection, she says. It is unlikely to happen twice. Instead, go have lunch. Sounds like good advice. For any of us. The kind of advice that releases us from the dual traps of expectation and judgment. The kind of advice that lets us keep moving rather than being stuck on whether someone else is ready to move along or not. Jesus knows something about the joy of overlooking someone else's disqualification. And instead seeing their potential as a dinner guest, he meets someone who is labeled by others as an outcast and he is immediately ready to wonder, what might this person bring to the table? Probably something interesting, maybe even something good, certainly something as worthy of welcome as anything I or you or anyone else might bring. Let's go have lunch and see what happens. I'm not a big person for parties. I really don't like noise. Too much of it makes me uncomfortable, not to mention all the problems I have with hearing, especially when there's a lot of background noise. The pulsing of loud music, the rise and fall of laughter, and calling out the heavy hum of other conversations. I struggle to hear in those environments, and so it makes me anxious that I will miss something or misunderstand something. But hearing issues aside, I also don't really like crowds just in general. I prefer people in smaller doses. But I do like dinner conversations. I do like sitting down at the table with someone I don't know so well. And then long after the last morsel of food has been eaten, I enjoy feasting on questions and answers. Stories and memories, comparing and even debating ideas. I like to learn about someone else who I might have otherwise popped into one of my convenient categories if I just passed them on the street. Eating together meets my hunger for food, but more importantly, it meets my hunger for connection. What about you? I was trying to think this week about the best meal I've ever had. I can think of a few that were quite delicious, though, although I remember less about the food itself than about the impression that the food was delicious. Taste does not stay in your memory the same way that a visual snapshot 
of the gathering might. But if I try to think about the best meal I've ever had, it's more likely that I am not thinking about food, but I'm thinking about a group of people around a table. I'm thinking about laughter. I'm thinking about affection. I'm thinking about the feeling of fellowship, real fellowship, kinship even. If I think in those terms, I can think of plenty of best meals. Some were with old friends. Some were first-time meetings with someone new. Some were sitting beside someone special. Some were the beginning of something special. Some were regular times in the rhythm of relationships I don't want to take for granted, but I almost do. Some joined favorite memories with familiar rituals. Some had guests who had nowhere else to be or nowhere else to go. And having them at the table, while it started out like we thought we were doing them a favor, ended up being a blessing to all of us. Some of those best meals have been with you. You know what? Come to Love Feast on Monday, Thursday. During Holy Week. It's not far off. The meal is only symbolic, but it's quite unlike anything else you will eat this spring. Come and sit with some people you may not be expecting to sit with. Or come on Easter morning for the sunrise service. Likely you will feel chilled in the cool morning air, but then you will be warmed when you come inside for Easter breakfast. Or come to our first full fellowship meal on May the 1st after worship and Sunday school. Come and sit at tables you haven't sat at in too long a time. Eat the food and be nourished by that food and by fellowship. Maybe that day choose to sit with someone you don't know so well. Someone who is already in the family of faith, but not yet in the circle of your heart. Who knows what could happen? Or if all of that still feels too strange and risky, since the pandemic is still peeking over your shoulder then invite someone over to sit on your back porch for a bite to eat. Celebrate a friendship or start a reconciliation. Taste the flavor of renewal, of grace, of hope. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Of course he does. In the presence of Jesus, in the example of Jesus, the table is open and the welcome is wide for us, for all. Eating together makes us human to each other. And at its best, it makes us family to each other. Amen.